Hello and welcome to the Rethink Energy podcast, where myself and my team look at the technology driving the energy transition. My name is Peter White, and as usual, I'm joined by our hydrogen and wind analyst, Harry Morgan. Hello. We're waiting for our solar specialist, Andreas Wontenar, who, who might have communications problems uh, since he relocated to Australia, but uh, he may turn up on the call. And of course, our publisher, Simon Thompson. Hello. On the show today, we'll be considering the EU ban on Russian oil. I mean, we keep coming back to Russia. Can it work? And what will it do to Russia? What will it do to Europe? And we're going to take a, a look at how some regulatory obstacles could slow the rate of uh, grid build-out in the Netherlands. Uh, that is if um, Andres joins the, joins us and slow the, the rise of solar there. And we're also going to take another look at the lobbying battle to save the solar industry in the US, uh, which is now starting to take on a political tone. And we'll ask if that will actually work. Uh, and we'll see what snippet has caught our publisher's eye. All right. Um, first off, let's take a long, deep dive on Russian oil, Harry. Yeah, so the, the big news this week was that the EU has proposed it, its big ban on uh, on oil imports um, from the end from the end of this year. So yeah, the, the plan would be that the Russian oil that currently accounts for around twenty five percent of Europe's oil will be replaced by other sources by the end of twenty twenty two. Obviously, it's a move it's aiming to maximise sort of the, the economic pressure on Russia I and mean, its invasion of Ukraine uh, and sort of choking off the funding of its government, which obviously is funding that war directly. The selection of the oil industry over over gas, which potentially attracts a bit more attention in the media, is probably a strong selection for for several reasons. I mean, the oil industry is actually worth more to Russia than than the gas industry. Um, so, it's, so for, sorry, Harry, it's it's oil, not gas. This doesn't include gas. Yeah, absolutely. So it's just it's just oil at this point uh, for several reasons, both in terms of logistical convenience for Europe and in terms of the value to Russia. And it's quite an interesting time, given that. Russia actually choked, uh, has sort of t- turned off gas to Poland and Bulgaria uh, last week. Uh, but the reason for this is that oil, especially at the elevated price we're seeing at the moment, is worth around 70% of uh, Russia's total exports. Um, it's around $310 million uh, per day equivalent. And the government in particular has really liked to generate tax revenues from this. So in its uh, fiscal budget for this year, around $180 billion, um, so 60% of the fiscal budget, is going to be coming from oil tax revenues in theory. Obviously, that will be hugely reduced, probably by around 50% if uh, Russia has to sell its oil elsewhere and not to Europe. Well, let me cut in there because I'm kind of curious. Um, I'm coming back to the gas side. Surely it being much warmer in Europe right now than um, than it has been in, at the beginning of the Ukraine war, we're using less gas for heat. And if we're using less gas for heat, then the contractual arrangements that... Um, are in place for places like France and Germany mean that we can reroute gas to help Poland deal with its complete shortage of um, of of Russian gas. So that's a kind of fake step, isn't it? Uh, yeah, somewhat. I mean, um, the the pipeline between that normally supplies Germany with Russian gas that flows through Poland is actually operating in the reverse direction at the moment. So. There's gas going to Germany and then obviously flowing out to Poland. This it obviously, yeah, is really helping to, to alleviate Poland's issues from this ban. Uh, the big, the reason that there's not going to be a ban on gas largely as well is that at this point in time and ahead of a winter where obviously we'll see 
uh, gas demand rise, Europe is really looking to fill its storage uh, of natural gas so that it can then start moving away. Uh, and it will, to some extent, do that using uh, using Russian gas. That's a great idea. We're going to fill our storage up. But this isn't all uh, a matter of bluff and counter bluff. This is not real consequences. Russia is pretending to punish Poland and Bulgaria, and we are pretending to be angry about it. And the oil is the bigger economic sanction than gas. Gas is would be an economic sanction. I mean, if Andres was here now, he'd be say he'd be kind of saying taking Russia's side and saying, well, if if they want to be paid in rubles, why can't they? And <laughs> he would be uh, taking that view. But um, the, the Russians, the whole thing has been a bluff. The whole, the whole war, the whole effort, everything he does now, Putin, is a bluff. And the numbers just don't stack up. If you look in this morning's papers, people have done an analysis of rerouting all the uh, oil supplies to other parts of the world. Can't be done. No more than one third of it can be absorbed elsewhere. Now, now, I mean, in the in the, a truly global market, you would think that the, the countries who don't have a beef with with Russia, i.e., most of Asia Pacific, could just take their cheaper oil from there, and then Qatar and other places would lose um, that that as a customer and could supply us with more. And it's it's more of a redistribution of the existing oil supplies, but because there aren't routes via which to distribute that Russian oil, including ships that that might get, feel that, that they belong to uh, Europe and therefore might feel they get punished by sanctions, um, that you can only redistribute some of it. And in fact, I think, Harry, you made a point in your article, they'll just end up producing less and falling away as an oil fall. Yeah, and I think that that's something that's really important to note and that I mean, realistically, Russia is going to be pumping out all the oil it can because if it has to shut down a lot of its facilities due to the um, the geology in Russia and how sort of depleted certain wells are, it's actually going to be uneconomic for them to bring that bring those facilities back online. So once we reach this point of Russia suddenly realizing they have to turn off their oil production, which will happen, I mean, China can't increase its demand that much from Russia. It's only currently accounts for one fifth of Russia's total exports, whereas Europe accounts for around half. Um, and Russia, while it will try to offload that by providing it to China at discount, it will eventually have to to stop producing as much, which especially once it brings it down to a break-even price um, that's sort of less sustainable. And it, yeah, it it means that Russian Russian oil production will will start to fall off. And I think that in itself is is going to be a catalyst for a massive decline within the global oil market. And I think that that reduction in price that we see from Russia will sudden will be a big dynamic in a big collapse in the price of global oil, but in the next sort of few years rather than this of the immediate future. Yeah, but let's look at the overall picture. We're still not back to the 2019 peak oil. No, we're, we're still not. not producing anything like, we're something like two and a half percent under that, that, that rate. And here we are talking about a third or more of Russian oil being turned off, which means that there's room for more suppliers to come back into the market hard. And, and it makes a real tough decision for OPEC+. Plus. If you're OPEC+, Plus, do you ignore Russia? Yes. Yeah, and so, say, you know, how do you deal with it? it surely OPEC+, plus breaks. Well, you've got to bear in mind that OPEC+, typically includes Russia. 
Um, so this is why this is particularly interesting. And OPEC Plus so far have actually refused calls to increase their output faster than they intended to bring their output back online, partially because they don't want to see the price of oil suddenly fall through the floor. I think we're right. And I think this is something that people are failing to failing to see is that we probably we are definitely past peak oil demand. And it's and there's just these sort of temporary measures in place to try and to keep oil prices high uh, and to make it look like there is this shortage. I mean, and now with with places like China buying twenty five percent of their vehicles as electric vehicles, all right, there's still an increasing global fleet. Um, they're still um, going to be increasing the number of of internal combustion engine cars on their roads slightly, just about at the moment. But once that twenty five percent goes to thirty percent, they won't. Once it goes to thirty five percent, it'll be a dwindling supply. And that's only one or two years away. If that, we forecast that um, the oil markets, the oil price falls dramatically. It, it, it goes along, bumbling along, pretty much ignoring everything and trading as it is till about 2027. And that, that forecast doesn't change. It's the rate at which we absorb um, electric vehicles, which which um, depicts that. And, and that's actually, if anything... Uh, the numbers are slightly higher in China than we forecast, slightly lower in America than we forecast, but but globally, just a bit more than, than, than we forecast. Everyone else's forecast is way below that. And so we, we, we're on track for 2027, the price of oil to start, for it to suddenly drop the requirement for oil to drop by 5% in one year and then and then in 2028 for it to happen again. All of that is still on track to happen. And I don't think anything Russia can do about that. I don't think anything that the oil suppliers can do about that. All they can do is get as much money between now and the end of 2027 as they can. Keeping the oil price at 100 uh, between now and 2027 is going to be a real exercise in futility. I, I think it's going to be impossible to do that because then the oil price crashes. Well, what's what's the implication for all of this for re- the renewables industry, especially with, with the reaction of uh, politicians and policymakers? Where, where, where does this leave renewables? I mean, in theory, we, we should see... Um, well, we are, well, we are seeing energy security strategies being published a lot uh, and sort of updated a lot, and they, they are having an increasing focus on renewables, I mean, definitely not as much as we'd like. We've been saying this for the past few weeks that we'd actually like to see much more focus placed upon short-term measures. So in, uh, in improving the rates of uh, permitting onshore wind farms and increasing the rates of insulation with, with housing, things like heat pump incentives, things like electric vehicle incentives are a really good way of addressing the energy crisis from the demand side. But the, the, the real incentive, time and time again, we come up against is renewables versus jobs. And when it comes to the car industry, the car industry is well and truly over the line now. It knows that if it wants jobs, it's got to invest in electric vehicles, not not internal combustion engines. And that's now a global, globally understood idea. Incentives are in place for every major government in the world to lower the cost of buying an electric vehicle to about the same price uh, as as it would be for an internal combustion engine vehicle, um, if you take into account the government subsidy, the only countries where that's not quite in place is the US has uh, still got trouble pushing that uh, a change in policy through, and places like the UK have such enthusiastic buyers that they uh, they shortchange 
the electric vehicle buyers and um, and and give the lowest uh, subsidy in all of Europe. But uh, mostly in China, in most of Europe, and and in scattered places around the world, those are in place because the governments want to keep the manufacturing jobs for car, the car industry where they are. And and that's so so that's where jobs and EVs, jobs and renewables are on the same side of the political equation. Is that the um, you wrote a, an article about the bipartisan infrastructure bill in the US uh, this week? So is that related to to these trends? Well, I mean, what 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 that was about, which is is really quite interesting, is ever since um, Biden has come into power. Yeah, so he started almost straight away thinking about what is it, what damage has Donald Trump done to the economy? Mm. And the first thing he's been really uh, chasing has been supply chains. Mm. And he's looked at all the renewable supply chains. And uh, he's, uh, and again, because the, the car industry in uh, America um, is responsible uh, by the government's estimate there for 1.1 trillion in the US economy every year. Now, that's not just the car makers selling cars, that's the components suppliers supplying them um, with components and the uh, um, garage mechanics fixing cars and, and you know, they possibly calculate some of the oil industry selling uh, oil to cars. It, it's, it's a huge boost to the American economy that Donald Trump jeopardized by saying, we're going to stick with the old way of doing things. We're not going to embrace electric vehicles. Um, and, and now America has a five-year gap. It is five years behind. It's, it's strange, isn't it? Te- Tesla wouldn't be advanced if it was in China. If it was compared with the other Chinese companies, they'd say, yeah, it's one of the better ones, but it's not, it's not doing anything extraordinary. But in America, Tesla's the only company that's making profits that makes only electric vehicles right now and, uh, right now not you know ford's working yeah but it. right now but it's about five years ahead of mm. of where ford and general motors are and in fact i think somebody pointed out this week that the profits this quarter when added up come to more than general motors and ford combined uh, and and that uh, and a year ago we were talking about when was tesla going to have its first profitable quarter well not a year a bit more than a year but and so it's gone from not profitable to very profitable in a very short space of time. And if you listen to the uh, results, it, it no longer talks about cars. In its results, it talks about making robots and flying to Mars and um, and a number of other, and, and and insurance and uh, self driving cars. It doesn't really talk about the electric revolution anymore. But so many people in America are so far behind, and they're far behind because of supply chain. Yeah. So the um, Biden invested in supply chain. The whole point is he realized that Donald Trump had almost destroyed the dominance that the USA has in making cars for the global market, and he's trying to put that back on track. And so he's released three point one billion for the uh, battery market, but three point one billion out of seven point five, which is which is aimed at that market. But the three point one billion is all about developing supply chain, and it starts with the materials for batteries. Mm-hmm. And it's basically saying we'll help you look for batteries, we'll help you demonstrate a pilot, we'll help you do anything you you can that will improve the possibility of keeping these jobs in America. 
he's put up 3.1 billion uh, for that uh, through the uh, Department of Energy this week. I mean, it, this this is stuff that we've talked about politically yeah. finally happening, and the, the money you know we'll start to see projects and allocations of cash in the coming months from this because it's now in the DOE's hands. But it's strange that it, it, it takes a couple of years to build a battery factory. And if you if it's your first, it takes you a bit more than a couple of years. And you don't want to make two at the same time because you want to learn all the lessons from making the first one. So it takes you three or four years to catch up. We're looking at 2027 before America can make enough batteries in America to supply its cars. And what if the... Um, what if the EV market accelerates there? Mm-hmm. Then, then Chinese batteries will have to be supplied. Mm-hmm. Uh, I read uh, a story this week that um, CATL, which has no uh, factories in America as yet, is supplying batteries to a number of grid projects in, in America. Mm-hmm. And, and they hate buying from China. <laughs> but there's, you can't get it from anywhere else. You can't get your batteries from anywhere else. All we need now for um, uh, America to completely shoot itself in the foot, the same way it has with solar, is to for the uh, Department of Commerce to start banning Chinese batteries in American electric vehicles uh, and then bring a case against the South Koreans uh, for using Chinese cells in their batteries, um, exactly the way it's done in the solar market. Mm-hmm. So the, the the I would think you know they still have the ability to let bureaucracy ruin their economy, ruin the heartland of their economy, which is vehicles. Mm. Harry, just coming back to the, the oil crisis, the energy shortage crisis. Do do you think um, th- there's anything else to add about what's going on in America? Yeah, it's interesting because, I mean, obviously the big debate in America is how much... Because America will be eyeing Europe as a potential customer for its, for its oil and gas. Um, I mean, that, that's obvious. But the the big thing is how much more oil and gas it can produce within Joe Biden's climate agenda. I mean, we also wouldn't want to see uh, the Gulf of Mexico suddenly seeing loads of new um, exploration going on there or in other waters. I mean, the, the Biden's already sort of rolled back on his promise of not no, sort of no more leases, basically. Uh, so that's... Um, a disappointment there. I think again. I think the US will look at it as an oil opportunity rather than an opportunity to sell clean technologies to Europe. I think that's where it, what where it should place its focus really, and it should be placing focus on trying to satisfy Europe's future uh, energy agenda rather than Europe's current current energy agenda. And I think that will be the mistake that the US makes. I think the US probably will continue to to lose out to China in that regard in terms of the technology it's providing. Uh, as ever, it's all about the money. It's all about the money. It's all about the here and now as well. It seems with the uh, with the US at this point. Yeah, I mean, uh, Joe Biden is not being seen as um, a president that has unilaterally taken the side of renewables uh, over traditional energy. He's um, he's the balanced politician that we all knew he was. He draws support from both sides of the line, either party, where he can, and he gets done what he can. He's pragmatic. Um, but he's not a gung-ho renewables uh, above all, all all else president. And I think we're still to see that in America. And um, I think perhaps if his, um, if after the next election, his um, 
uh, is the, the the deputy gets in, we might start. We might finally start to see that type of policy agenda take hold. Uh, but that's going to be really tough because we're talking about in twenty twenty seven timeframe, there being uh, sort of um, blood spill in the oil industry, and uh, the the kind of death throws um, lasting until twenty thirty one. And of course that. Is is that decisions will be made about the oil industry by the next president and the one after, and those decisions could be reactionary. Let's dig in and make sure America has as much of what's left of the oil market as possible, or they could be revolutionary. Let's move on. Let's get into renewables, and it really depends which party and which representative leads that party that uh, will will we'll have the first really true green president. We're supposed to talk about Andres's story about is a, a real observation that he's, he's he's come to about the Netherlands uh, solar market. Uh, the Netherlands is only what seventeen million people. It's not a, a, a huge country, but it is a very advanced country, both socially and, and technologically and industrially, and it's it's quite energy uh, reliant and very strong on energy. It's where Shell uh, hails from. And we, we've noticed a lot more Dutch solar installations than ever. And that we've seen it double. It, it joined the gigawatt club. Uh, it's one gigawatt of solar uh, installed every year in, in about 2016-17. It's surged on up to 3.7 gigawatts in 2020. And it started to fall. And he's written a really interesting article which shows how uh, Tenet and the other grid suppliers yeah, are, are saying they're hamstrung by regulations in terms of connecting a big solar uh, farm. So that we and he's produced these maps with um, uh, the key, which is there's a threat of transport scarcity, um, there's structural congestion, and there's new requests for transport are ignored, uh, and and um, the ignored is a large part of the country. So basically, you try and build a solar panel in the wrong part of the country, you won't get it connected for a long time. Hello, it's uh, Andres, the solo writer here. I got over my technical issues and I joined the call. Uh, I appear, however, to have kicked everyone else off the call by joining. So this won't be the longest episode. This is going to be more of a half an hour deal. I did hear what, uh, what my boss was saying about the Netherlands grid. So I don't really have much to add. The article really speaks for itself. It has these dramatic maps covered in splotches of red and orange where they simply can't agree to add new um, generating capacity to the grid. They they don't have the uh, lines for it. But there's even a second image where they can't even arrange for off-takers to join the grid. I think the uh, the explanation for this is this really shouldn't have happened in one of Europe's most wealthy places, which is ironically... Uh, it's ironically a, a distribution centre for the whole con- for, for the whole of Western Europe. It's uh, got all of these port facilities and all of the um, refinery facilities as well. But then it fails on its own electricity grid. In really quite an avoidable way, they should be able to reduce these regulatory and permitting delays that run into eight-year timeframes. That's just a bit ridiculous. Uh, but they do have... It is kind of understandable that they've ended up like this because they've been taken by surprise by solar, uh, more so than everyone else. And the reason for that is that the Netherlands, with its 17 million population, has become almost as active as Spain and Germany, and it's by far the most active market per capita in Europe. And it also wasn't one of the original 
2008 to 2012 era solar markets within Europe. So it, it just joined in 2016, and this whole thing sort of crept up on it and then took it by surprise of having all of this solar connected to the grid. And you can see the impact of that with uh, annual installations falling from 3.5 gigawatts to 3.2 uh, from 2020 to 2021, when it, it would have otherwise have grown quite dramatically, uh, in part because the Netherlands is actually the distribution centre for Chinese modules throughout Western Europe, uh, even to Poland. If you look at the Chinese export numbers, huge amounts of them are signed off as going to Netherlands, uh, when of course they're not all installed in the Netherlands. It's just where the ports are. Um, so they are reacting, they are establishing new initiatives, new funding for the grid. Uh, but a lot of the big, num a lot of the big uh, dates that have been set for this are again 2026, 2029. So they are missing the boat. They are missing a, a bit of an opportunity here uh, by inflicting this delay on themselves before uh, this really gets ironed out. I think, I think once they sort out this issue in the next four to seven years. I don't think it'll come back. Uh, if you look at the rest of Europe, it's not really a place that has lots of transmission issues. There's some transmission issues with Germany because it has quite restricted planning permission and it also has all of its offshore wind. So all of one particular type of variable renewable, uh, which goes up and down depending on the conditions, it's all in one tiny, it's all in the far flung corner of the country up in the uh, northwest. Although actually they will be building some in the Baltics as well, but you know that puts some strain on the German grid. But apart from that, you know this is not this is something that Europe can can really uh, avoid. It's not uh, it's not a place like Australia where the sheer size of the country makes it really expensive to build transmission lines. I think in Australia, you will see it be an, an ongoing issue because of that. Anyhow, that's this week's podcast. Do check out the orders and worth noting sections. We also had wrote up an interview with a solar thermal startup. Come to think of it, one of the orders is a concentrated solar thermal plant in Saudi Arabia. That caught my eye. As always, that's available in the weekly issue and on the rethinkresearch.biz website. And you can check out our forecasts and our research work there as well, uh, which requires subscription. You can contact Simon at rethinkresearch.biz regarding any subscriptions you would like to place with us. Have a good day.